At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, making his faithful march toward the cross. And he's using this journey, this relatively lengthy journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, to train his disciples. He's teaching them that they approach life differently now that they are followers of Christ. And one of the things they approach differently is leadership. And so in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, that's where we pick the story up. We're also gonna, also along the way, Jesus makes three predictions of his death. And we're gonna read the third one right here. And one of the, one of the things these predictions bring up is the opportunity to teach his disciples about leadership. And so it's in light of this third prediction that he's going to teach them about leadership. You'll see how it flows as I read all these verses for us. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. And Jesus and the disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of the disciples, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, Jesus began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn the Son of Man to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of the 12 disciples, they came up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to James and John, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? James and John said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the other 10 disciples heard this exchange, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them, all the disciples, and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the book, 
Flags of Our Father, author James Bradley tells the story of the pivotal World War II event, the Battle of Iwo Jima. The Japanese island of Iwo Jima was a strategic place of attack as the U.S. forces sought victory over the Axis powers in Japan. But James Bradley, the author, he wasn't interested in the Battle of Iwo Jima for its historical significance. Bradley's father, James Bradley, was among the Navy corpsmen who was assigned to the U.S. Marines to help storm the island. Moreover, after the Marines' victory, Bradley's dad was captured in one of the most iconic photos in U.S. history. And so you can see in this photograph several soldiers raising the U.S. flag over Iwo Jima, marking America's presence there upon victory. And though we're not sure which soldier he is, John Bradley was among the soldiers taking part in this now famous moment. Furthermore, for his acts of heroism during the battle, Soldier Bradley would go on to receive the Navy Cross, the second highest decoration possible for a naval soldier. However, despite John's high honor and despite being captured in this most iconic photo, he very rarely ever mentioned it to his family. Apparently, he only spoke of the photo once with his wife and a couple of times to his children. And so out of a curiosity to know of his father's heroism, James Bradley, the son, set out to study and write his book about the Battle of Iwo Jima and his father's role in it. And here's one of the author's conclusions concerning what his dad thought about status and fame. Quote, celebrities seek fame. They take actions to get attention. Most often, the actions they take have no particular moral content. True heroes are heroes because they have risked something to help others. Bradley goes on to write that when his dad was first shown the photo of himself raising the flag, he didn't even remember it. He didn't even remember this moment raising the flag there. Because for him, his leadership and bravery was not about gaining notoriety or attention. It was about doing the right thing and helping others, even at great cost to himself. You see, leadership and authority are a part of how God designed life to work. Whether we're talking about our homes, at our work, in our church, or military, Leadership and authority are parts of how God designed life to work. But how do we lead and exercise authority as God intends? Well, what Jesus teaches us here is that true leadership values service over status. True leadership values service over status. And in this passage, we, we see three steps toward cultivating in ourselves what true leadership looks like. The world is desperate for genuine, authentic leaders. And in this passage, Jesus instructs us on how to be such compelling, effective, and faithful leaders. First, set aside the glory of self. Set aside 
the glory of self. So let's jump back into the story, starting in verse 32. Mark picks it up there on their journey. They were on the road going to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of the disciples, taking the 12 again. Jesus began to tell them what was going to happen. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. After three days, he will rise. So traveling on their way, Jesus once more predicts his impending death, and it will not be pretty. Jesus says he will be condemned in court, mocked and spat upon by the guards, beaten with rods through flogging, and finally killed through crucifixion. Furthermore, both the Jews and the Gentiles are complicit in his death. The Jewish leaders pronounce Jesus' death sentence, handing him over to the Gentiles to do their dirty work of crucifixion. And so Jesus predicts that the glorious Son of Man will be put to a horrible, disgraceful death. And after Jesus makes this prediction, the story continues in verse 35. James and John come up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus said to James and John, what do you want, me for, you to, what do you want me for me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. And so after Jesus' prediction, James and John, two of the disciples closest to Jesus, they make a request of their teacher. And on the surface of it, their request is harmless. After all, they're not asking for money. They're not asking for material possessions. Rather, they just want to experience glory with Jesus. More specifically, they want to sit on Jesus' left and right when he comes into his glory. You see, James and John were convinced that Jesus was the promised son of King David. They believed that Jesus was the chosen one who would reign over God's people as their king. And they want to be Jesus' right and left-hand men when Jesus sits on his glorious throne. And so in and of itself, this request isn't a bad thing, right? James and John were right to believe that Jesus would be made glorious. And they were right to believe that Jesus' followers will reign with him in glory. However, Jesus' response to their request indicates that the motivation behind James and John's request is not so pure. Verse 38, the conversation continues. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we're able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. So even though James and John, they lack no confidence, we are able. Jesus assures them that they are ignorant. You do not know what you are asking, he tells them. James and John do not know that to sit on Jesus' left and right in glory is preceded first by drinking the bitter cup of suffering. They do not know that to sit on Jesus' left and right in glory is accompanied first by an overwhelming flood or baptism of suffering. Let's think about these two images for a moment, the cup and the water of baptism. In the Old Testament, the imagery of the cup 
is sometimes used to refer to the cup of God's blessing, the cup of God's provision. But more often, the Old Testament speaks of the cup of God's judgment and the terrible suffering experienced by those who drink it. So for example, upon being destroyed by their Babylonian captors, the prophet Isaiah called upon the people of God, this is Isaiah 51 verse 17, the prophet says to the people, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who drunk from the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. So Isaiah is saying that for their rebellion and idolatry, God's people had been massacred by the Babylonians. And Isaiah describes their suffering in terms of drinking from a cup. So Jesus is saying that James and John do not understand that to sit with Jesus in glory, they too will have to first drink a similar cup of suffering. Likewise, Jesus speaks of a baptism that James and John are ignorant of. He says to be baptized, so to be baptized, think about it, we saw this a couple of weeks ago, to be baptized is to be plunged, to be overwhelmed, to be flooded with water. And similar to the cup in the Old Testament, water is an image of God's judgment and terrible suffering. So you recall the great flood of Genesis chapter six through nine, which wiped out all of humanity for their rebellion against God. And you recall the waters of the Red Sea. These waters split open for Moses and Israel to pass through safely. But once they were across, those same waters flooded over the Egyptians and the enemies of God were overwhelmed. They were baptized under the water of God's judgment. So Jesus is saying that James and John do not understand to sit with Jesus in glory, they too will first be plunged and overwhelmed by much suffering. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus assures them. So what is blinding James and John from the truth that suffering comes before glory? Why were they still ignorant? Because Jesus had just finished predicting his own gruesome death for the third time. Why couldn't they figure this out? Well, we see from Jesus' response that James and John were blinded because of selfish ambition. They want the seat of power and influence and leadership, but they don't know what they're asking for. They don't know the cost of glory because the glory they're seeking is still ultimately about them, not Jesus. It's self-glory, not God's glory that's motivating them, and so they conveniently, they naively overlook the great suffering that comes before great glory. The cup The baptism, the cross, sacrificial suffering comes before glory. So think of the contrast. Think of the contrast between Jesus' prediction and the disciples' request. Jesus predicts a horrible death, and the disciples ask for glorious status. The variation between their prediction Jesus' prediction and their request clarifies how selfish and inappropriately ambitious the disciples are. 
How do we lead in a way that honors God and is compelling to others? James and John show us our need to set aside the glory of self. Selfish ambition blinds us to the truth that suffering precedes glory with Jesus. So during my time playing quarterback on my high school football team, man, that was a long time ago. Like 30 pounds ago, like 200 pounds on my bench press ago. Oh my gosh. So, so long ago. During my high school years of playing quarterback, I learned very on that it is a good idea for the quarterback to be on good terms with the offensive line because these big bruisers protect the quarterback taking hits every play so the quarterback can succeed. Well, as I was trying to win over my teammates, I kind of stumbled into this lesson about leadership and my need to set aside self-glory. You see, if you're not familiar with football, one of the offensive linemen, the position called center, has to hike the ball every play between his legs to the quarterback. It's sort of this awkward snapping the ball between his legs. It's weird, but it's the way it works. Seems normal now. And sometimes there's a mishandling of the snap between center and quarterback, and the ball is dropped or fumbled. But it's always kind of hard to know whose fault was it that the ball dropped? Was it the center's fault not getting the ball into the QB's hand, or was it the QB's fault not catching the ball when the center snapped it? And whenever there was a fumbled snap, the coach would always ask, what's going on? What happened? And me and the center would kind of look at each other like, who's gonna take the fall here? And somehow, in my otherwise dense and selfish teenage brain, it occurred to me that I should always take the blame for the fumbled snap. It's on me, coach, my bad, which would be followed by what we used to call a dog cussing. Not sure they allow that anymore. But even though I took the fall, even though I set aside my personal ambition to be thought well of by the coach and be named the starter, taking the blame like this actually won me the respect of my offensive lineman and ultimately helped me lead the team as their quarterback. Even though I wanted the status of being the starting quarterback, even though I wanted the glory of getting to take the field as the starter by impressing the coaches, the way to actually accomplish that goal was setting aside my selfish ambition. Well, this is a lesson that Jesus teaches the disciples here. True glory and a genuinely noble status is not achieved through selfish, pain-free, don't inconvenience me actions. It's when we set aside our own personal interest for the sake of others that we're then able to lead them well. So church, think about your own areas of leadership. In the home, at work, at church, amongst your friends, how does selfish ambition show up as you relate to these people? What ways might you have hurt others because you acted selfishly in order to achieve success? Set aside self-glory as you seek to lead others. That's the first direction Jesus gives for cultivating true leadership, and this next charge corresponds. Set aside self-glory. Secondly, prioritize the good of others. 
prioritize the good of others. In verse 42, Jesus continues addressing the disciples in light of James and John's request, and he continues teaching them about true leadership. So verse 42, Jesus called all of the 12 disciples and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. So after identifying their selfish ambition, Jesus admonishes the disciples concerning what genuine leadership looks like. And in order to make this point, Jesus contrasts Christian leadership with ungodly, worldly leadership. He says the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over those they lead. So Jesus is describing here a domineering approach to leadership. This type of leader is likened to a bulldozer more than a shepherd. Overpowering, controlling, and forceful. Furthermore, Jesus says their great ones exercise authority over them. He says the world's measuring stick for leaders is greatness. Great looks, great minds, great swagger, great popularity, great pedigree, great wealth, greatness. That's who leads the Gentiles. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. God's people are to evaluate leaders in a qualitatively different way than the world does. Instead of a high-status, domineering type, we are to affirm and seek to become leaders who prioritize the good of others. Jesus puts it this way at the end of verse 43 there. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So in the kingdom of God, great leaders are great servants. And a servant exists for the one who is served. The very nature of a servant is to prioritize the good of the one who is being served. Leadership is service in the kingdom of God. In the kingdoms of the world, the leader is the priority of the leader. In the kingdom of God, the followers are the priority of the leader. And in the second half of this verse, Jesus just intensifies his call to servant leadership. He says, whoever would be great must be servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So in other words... The leaders, the ones who are first in line, are slaves of those they lead. Now we've talked, now we've seen Jesus talk about servanthood before. You look back to Mark chapter 9, verse 35, he says something very similar. If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. But here he amps up the language and instead of saying servant of all, he says slave of all. Now, it's important to know that slavery in ancient cultures was not typically what we think of when we think of slavery. The tragic and unjust practice of more modern slavery was based on skin color and was driven by kidnapping. But the ancient practice of slavery in the Roman Empire was quite different, though still very harsh in many cases. One of the less harsh forms of slavery, however, occurred when someone would go bankrupt 
And if someone who went bankrupt or experienced some great need for shelter or money, they could sell themselves to someone who was wealthier, who could house them and employ them. They were literally owned, usually temporary, by the ones they were enslaved to. And Jesus says, if you want to lead in a way consistent with the kingdom of God, then you will be slave of all. You will be owned by the very ones you lead. Your life and leadership is not about you or for you. You exist for your followers. So Jesus is calling his disciples to check their motives for why they want to lead. Is it because you want to make much of yourself? Is it because you want to be famous? Is your leadership just a platform for self-celebration? Or will you lead prioritizing the good of others? Um, Gallup Incorporated is a research company that conducts nationwide surveys on all sorts of topics from politics to dieting habits. You may have heard of a Gallup poll that reports any number of surveyed statistics. Well, in a recent Gallup poll, they, uh, the company questioned over 700 Americans chosen randomly, and this time the survey had to do with trustworthiness and, high, uh, and ethical standards as it related to different occupations. So which occupations do you trust the most was the basic question. And get this. For the 22nd year in a row, and that's how long they've been conducting this survey, 22 years, for 22 years in a row, nurses have had the highest level of trustworthiness over all other professions. Over 82% of Americans said they believe nurses have high to very high ethical standards just based on the fact that they're nurses alone. And if you think about it, it makes sense that so many people would trust nurses. Because in what other profession than nursing do you have to prioritize the good of others? Nurses exist to care and serve and meet the needs, not of themselves, but of their patients. And for so many of us who've been cared for by nurses in our time of need, we can really see how willingly they care for their patients before they think of themselves. Our good, our well-being is the nurse's entire goal. When the people you lead think about you, would they have that same sort of admiration and trust that so many have towards nurses? And how can you begin to shift your leadership so that others can see you care more about them than yourself? And perhaps for many of us, this may begin with an apology for any selfishness we've shown in the way we lead. Well, after urging his disciples to prioritize the good of others, Jesus gives a final direction for becoming a true and effective leader. He says, conform to the cross of Christ. Conform to the cross. This is how Jesus finishes this exchange with the disciples, this last verse, 45. He says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this finishing charge, Jesus points to the ultimate example of selfless servant leadership, his own purpose to die in the place of his people for our redemption. Think about this term, son of man, and where it comes from. 
very important for feeling the weight of this verse. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, the prophet Daniel reports a vision he's had. And so during Daniel's ministry, God's people are in exile in Babylon. They were under the rule of foreign idolatrous kings and away from the promised land. But God gives Daniel a vision of the future, a vision of a different day when God's people would no longer be under another ruler. He says in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which is a name for God. The son of man came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him, the son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. The son of man's kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So what an amazing scene. This son of man figure that Daniel speaks of, he makes his glorious appearance riding the clouds of heaven. He appears before God and God gives the son of man everlasting dominion and glory over the entire world. Amazingly, Daniel says, all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him, the one called the Son of Man. And now, here in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, and throughout the Gospels, really, Jesus claims that he himself is, in fact, the Son of Man. He is the promised ruler who will deliver God's people and reign over the nations. And yet, what a contrast. Jesus says the Son of Man came not to be served. But what about Daniel prophesying that all nations will serve the Son of Man? Well, you remember from our first point, suffering comes first, then glory. Before Jesus would be enthroned at the right hand of the Father, before Jesus returns to rule the nations, he had to suffer. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, Jesus suffered the judgment of God against sin so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus endured the wrath of God against sin so that we wouldn't have to. The Son of Man, this glorious, worthy, awesome King, acts as a servant. The great leader of God's people is also the humble servant of God's people. And his greatest act of sacrifice was to offer up his own life, even to death, death on a cross, so that we might be redeemed. Jesus had all the status in the world, but as a genuine leader, he set aside his own glory, he prioritized the good of others, and he took up the cross for you and me. And Jesus now wants our leadership, wants my leadership, wants Jim's leadership to be informed and shaped by this unimaginably great act of service he's provided for us in dying in our place. Jesus calls us to a leadership style that promotes the good of those we lead, even if it costs us our own reputation, time, money, status, even our own lives. Conform your leadership to the cross of Christ. 
John Bradley and so many of the valiant soldiers of the Allied forces, they gave up spending time with family. These young men gave up starting their education. They gave up earning money in the marketplace. They gave up building homes and starting their families. They gave up many other comforts that people in the prime of their lives are afforded. Because in the 1940s, a great evil was spreading. The Nazism and the violent nationalism of the Axis powers could not be ignored. Despite the death of their young dreams, despite the death of their personal ambition, thousands of young men and women, like John Bradley, courageously stood up against this evil. And it was not for status, it was not for celebrity, it wasn't to build their platform and advance their own cause, it was for the good of others at the expense of self. Yet despite how dramatic these soldiers' sacrifices were, incredibly, they pale in comparison to the unimaginably great sacrifice made by our Lord. Never did anyone have such a high status as the Son of Man, and yet never did anyone make such a sacrifice and serve others as the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus did. So, What would it look like for your leadership to be shaped by Jesus' work on the cross? What perhaps painfully sacrificial decisions might you have to make in order to make those around you prosper? Reflect on all the areas of leadership and influence in your life. Family, friends, work, ministry, church, life group, civic organizations, clubs, whatever. Who are the people in your life and groups in your life that need your selfish, selfless leadership. Let's pray for the Spirit to show us our blind spots in our leadership because we can become, like James and John, we can become unaware of how selfish ambition causes us to show up falsely, domineering, controlling, harsh, judgmental, uncaring towards those we lead. May it never be. But may we set aside self-glory, may we prioritize the good of others, and may we conform our lives and leadership to the cross of Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray, church. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wisdom of Jesus speaking into the lives of his disciples, even hundreds of years later, speaking into our own lives, the wisdom of Jesus to reveal our selfishness, to reveal our ambition, to reveal our need for humility and servant leadership. And so God, I pray for myself, I pray for Jim, I pray for Gary, I pray for all of us, as all of us have influence in one way or another. God, would you show us by your Holy Spirit ways that we've acted selfishly, ways that we show up controlling, domineering, forceful. God, teach us the gentleness of Christ. God, teach us the humility of Christ, him who was crucified on our behalf, him who gave up his life so that broken, 
guilty sinners could be saved. And Father, make us like him. By your Holy Spirit, make us like him who was servant of all, who was servant of all. Lord, we look to him now in his humility, and we look to him now in his glory. God, help us to praise you. Touch our lips that our mouths may declare your praise, the praise of your son in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.